Why, 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 why? Throughout the centuries, kids have asked why questions about their dads. Usually it's why questions about habits of their dads, things that their dads do, annoying things that their dads do. I came across an interesting list of such questions. It goes like this. Why do dads have to sneeze so loud? Why do dads think they can outsmart a GPS system? Why do dads fall asleep on the couch as soon as they sit down? Why do dads take grilling so seriously? Why do dads always answer the phone yellow? All right, just show of hands. Anybody do that? I love it if you are. <laughs> nice memes. Are you serious? That is great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Why do dads rub and then pat their belly after eating a meal? Oh, bacon. Man, that's good. A little more, please. Why do dads turn the radio off when they're looking for a parking spot? <laughs> I don't, I've never done that, but I like it. Why do dads always shake their handful of peanuts before popping them in their mouth? You might do this. My father-in-law does this. I love it. It's funny. And why do dads adjust the seats and the mirrors in their kid's car just to move it seven feet in the driveway? That's actually a Mother's Day question in my home, so I, I, I have to push that one off. That's, that's not me. Dads aren't the only ones with interesting habits in life, right? We, we all have some, some interesting habits, maybe some habits that we should stop, um, maybe some, some habits that we should start. I was reading the other day, uh, Hilary Hoffauer with Business Insider was writing about a young man named Rafael Badziag. I hope I'm saying his name right. He spent five years interviewing billionaires, 21 self-made billionaires. And in the course of interviewing them face-to-face, he found out that those 21 billionaires had six things in common, the same six things in common. So here they are. Billionaires wake up early. Some of you just decided that you do not want to be a billionaire. That's fine. No problem. No problem. Number two, billionaires keep healthy and exercise. Some of you just decided that you do not want to be a billionaire, and that's fine. We understand. Number three, billionaires read. Some of you just decided that you definitely do not want to be a billionaire. We got it. We got it. Number four, billionaires contemplate, they think, they develop routines and rituals, and they practice discipline. Now, those aren't just the habits of billionaires, right? Those, those are just good habits. Those are good habits for, for anybody to pursue. Raphael goes on to say this, billionaires are by no means superhumans or perfect working automatons. They also sometimes feel lazy like you and me. The only difference is they are aware of this fact and they don't let themselves slack. So, do you have any slack in your life? Do you have any bad habits? Do you have any lazy habits? Do you have any habits in your life right now that are actually stealing your joy? Habits that are actually stealing your peace? Habits that are actually stealing your hope? Do you have any habits in your life that, that are kind of killing the sense in your heart and your mind and your soul that, that there is a place where the atmosphere is full of everything that is good and happy and satisfying? 
That's a good atmosphere, right? Where can we find that atmosphere? Well, Apostle Paul is going to help us find where that atmosphere is. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writing to his friends in Philippi says this, I press on. Paul is saying, I press on, I I push on, I drive on, I intensely endeavor. I keep putting things in motion. I keep making it my greatest habit to keep moving forward. Warren Wiersbe said this, A man does not become a winning athlete by listening to lectures, watching movies, reading books, or cheering at the games. He becomes a winning athlete by getting into the game and determining to win. And then he says this, wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians put as much determination into their spiritual life as they do their golfing, fishing, or bowling? Now, you may not be that strong a bowler, but, but you get the idea, right? Wouldn't it be great if we put the same determination into our spiritual life that we would put into binge-watching our favorite TV show? Wouldn't it be great if we put the same kind of determination into our spiritual life that, that we put into our favorite sports team or our favorite social media app? Wouldn't it be great if we put the same kind of determination into our spiritual life that we put into summer and our summer plans and our summer vacations and our summer relaxation? Paul is pressing on. He's being determined with his spiritual life because he has passion and he has zeal. What is zeal? What does it mean to have zeal? It means you have a burning desire to do something. Paul had a burning desire to press on. He had a burning desire to keep moving forward. He had a burning desire to keep making progress. If you ever... Head to the land down under for a Vegemite sandwich, and you have an opportunity to see the the kangaroos and the emus, you will notice that they don't move backwards. (laughs) Backwards is not their thing. It's kind of hard for them to move backwards. For the kangaroos, because that huge, gigantic tail they have, they they don't go backwards very easily. And for the emu, it's something about the the joints in their knees that are able to do that backward mobility thing. Interestingly, the official Australian coat of arms has a kangaroo and an emu on it. And someone has said that's a picture, a symbol, that Australia does not want to move backwards, that they want to keep moving forward, that they want to progress. Bill Crowder said this, While it is wise to learn from the past, we shouldn't live in the past. We cannot redo or undo the past, but by God's grace, we can press forward and serve God faithfully today and in the future. Maybe every Christian needs to adopt the Australian coat of arms, you know, because we're supposed to be pressing on. We're supposed to be moving forward. We're supposed to be making progress. Paul was pressing on. Just think about it from last year to now. If you're, if you're a professing Christian, just look back at, at your year. And, and if you can't see any spiritual growth, any, any different spiritual life, at the very least, that's a red flag. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you're supposed to be some super Christian this year as compared to last year, that you're supposed to wear more T-shirts that have Bible verses on it, that, that you got selected to be a, a Bible study leader, or you got elected an elder or deacon in the church, or, or you won the uh, committee member of the year award for perfect attendance on Wednesday night suppers. That's not the picture here. 
It's just this, that when we look back on every year of our life, we can see that that we've pressed on in some way, that we've made progress, that we've moved forward. And listen, sometimes pressing on and sometimes moving forward and sometimes making progress means that you spend a year depressed. It means that you spend a year distressed. It means you spend a year discouraged. But with every stress and every moment of depression and every discouragement, you keep turning to Jesus. That's moving forward. It may not feel like it, but if you keep turning your eyes to Jesus over and over again, you're pressing on. You're moving forward. Spurgeon said this, if you never have sleepless hours, if you never have weeping eyes, if your hearts never swell as if they would burst, you need not anticipate that you will be called zealous. You do not know the beginning of true zeal, for the foundation of Christian zeal lies in the heart. The heart must be heavy with grief and yet must beat high with holy ardor, enthusiasm. And then he says this, As well a chariot without its steeds, a sun without its beams, a heaven without its joy, as a man of God without zeal. Or a woman of God. Zeal is is something that we we have to have as believers, this sense of pressing on. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed and happy and, and satisfied and content and fortunate to be envied is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Blessed and happy and fortunate and satisfied and content to be envied is the person who has zeal for righteousness. We know what this is like, right? I mean, you're, your stomach's growling, your head hurts, and you walk into the kitchen, when is dinner? I'm starving. We, we, we know that feeling, right? Or it's burning up outside and, and you feel like you have a mouthful of cotton balls and you say, man, I need a Snapple. I am so thirsty, right? I mean, we know what it means to be hungry. We know what it means to be thirsty. And Jesus takes this natural thing that all of us understand and he connects it to a supernatural truth. He says, look, you, you need to be hungry for righteousness. You need to be thirsty for righteousness. You need to have a zeal for righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, let's just keep it simple. We could just say that it's rightness with God. It means being right with God. It means being on the same page with God. It means that you're saved and you are living out your salvation with your life. It means that you are blessed and happy and satisfied because you have a zeal to grow in your faith. Not just to sit still, but to press on and press on and press on. Annie Hawks said it this way in the great hymn, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Every hour, not not just an hour on Sunday. Every hour I need thee. From the time that he was saved, Paul never had moments where he went, you know what? 
I'm good. I, I think I've done my Christian duty of the day. I, I, I don't feel like I need to, to press on anymore. Paul didn't have days like that, and, and neither should we. we. We shouldn't have days like that. It doesn't mean that we have to start wearing more T-shirts with Bible verses on it. But here's what it means. It, it just means that to press on, for us to press on, it means, just like Spurgeon said, that you've had some sleepless nights over your sin. That you've, you've wept over the sin of someone you love. It, it means that you've had some days where your heart was bursting with joy. It was a good day. And then you've had some days when you felt like your faith was gone, but you pressed on. You had some days where you felt like you were emotionally paralyzed, but you kept moving forward. You had some days where you were struggling to even believe in God, but your zeal was real, and you kept pressing on. That's the picture that Paul lays out for us. And what are we pressing toward? Listen to what he says next. I press on toward the goal. A goal is something that we fix our eyes on, right? An Olympic runner, they they fix their eyes on the finish line. A a stock market trader, they they fix their eyes and their ears on the closing bell. A race car driver, they fix their eyes on the checkered flag. A social media consultant, they fix their eyes on on the likes. A foodie fixes their eyes on the three levels of spinning trays of desserts. I've seen this firsthand. It's amazing. We know what it means to to fix our eyes on something. Jeff Thomas writes about living in the country of Wales during World War II. He says this, Throughout the Second World War, War, we were waiting for the victory. There were the ration books and clothes coupons and the blackout and, and air raid warnings. There were the bomb buildings all over Cardiff and Swansea and then an occasional welcome letter from North Africa where my mother's brother was fighting. But my memory of the 1940s is that they were happy years. The cause for which we fought was just. Hitler and his Nazi party had to be beaten. We went through those years in good spirit because we knew that we could not fail. We endured privation, separation, and loss because we knew that we would emerge victorious. We were on the winning side. Psychiatrists tell us that in wartime there is less mental illness, fewer cases of depression, and a greater sense of community. We were pressing on toward the goal of victory. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but but is it possible that some of the stress and anxiety and depression and anger and frustration and disappointment that we face in life, could some of it be connected to the fact that we have quit fixing our eyes on the goal? That we've quit fixing our eyes on on that which God has called us to? And and what is that? What is the goal for a Christian? Well, Paul says it just a few sentences later. We'll look at it in a few Sundays. Philippians 3 verse 20. For our citizenship, it's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is not an attitude. It is a place. It has an atmosphere. An atmosphere that is full of everything that is good and happy and satisfying. It's, it's a real place. And, and how do I know heaven is real? 
Well, not because of some kid's book, I can tell you that. Now, I know heaven is real because of one sentence from the Son of God. He said this, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm good. I don't need a backup to that. I don't need a a theological treatise on that. The word of Jesus Christ, it's enough for me. And no doctor and no hospital and no disease and no president and no queen and no king and no stress and no depression and no anxiety and no difficult spouse and no difficult child will ever change that sentence. I can have confidence that Jesus has gone and prepared a place for me because Jesus is trustworthy. He has proven himself, as the hymn says, or and or and or. Somebody might say, but I can't see heaven. Can you see the the signal to your smartphone right now? The one that's allowing you to, to scroll through social media or text your BFF instead of listening to the sermon right now? By the way, if you're doing that, I can't see you, so you're good. No, no problem. So you, you can't see that signal, but you know it's real. You know it's real. Matt Smethurst says this, do unseen things exist? The answer is obvious once you consider oxygen, gravity, or even Wi-Fi. But what about invisible realities that can't be scientifically measured? Well, think of love or dignity, or justice, or hope. Now, might there be a spiritual world that, though unseen, is entirely real as well? This is precisely what the Bible teaches, and one of these realities is heaven. He goes on. While it's impossible to prove the existence of heaven in the same way you'd prove the existence of Chicago, that doesn't mean the place is fictional. To be sure, belief in heaven finally boils down to faith, not blind or irrational faith, but faith nonetheless. Though you or I cannot scientifically prove heaven's existence or non-existence, it is an entirely plausible belief to hold. The reliable testimony of the Scriptures, as well as the unquenchable longings of our souls, powerfully attest to its reality. And, And then he says something that's extremely important for us to remember. He says this, we must remember the only reason we can go to heaven is because God left heaven to come to us. 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, God lived the life we failed to live, died the death we deserved to die, and rose again so that all who embrace him might enjoy him forever. And he says this, if you're trusting Jesus for salvation, the judge of the cosmos looks at you, sin and all, and sees his spotless son. That's amazing news. And and then he quotes Tozer. Get this. This is so good. A.W. Tozer. Did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there? That's a fantastic truth. So, are you pressing toward that goal? Are you fixing the eyes of your heart and your mind and your soul on heaven? 
Does it cross your mind or is it it something that you want to stay away from? Is it something you don't want to consider? Another week has come and gone and I'm pretty sure we can look into the headlines and, and discover that there really is nothing in this world that's ever going to bring us lasting hope and peace and joy. We must fix our eyes on the goal. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully like this. If we find ourselves in a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Another world. The atmosphere. The place of heaven. So what happens when you reach a goal in life? Well, Paul reminds us. Look at the next part of verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When you reach a goal, there's a prize. Even if the prize is just that you didn't eat the third donut last night, right? I mean, sometimes that's a confidence builder. (laughs) It is for me, at least. You know, sometimes it can be small. It doesn't have to be something grand. But what kind of prize is, is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the the prize of the call itself, that the the call itself is the prize, that being chosen to be on the team, that is the prize. Being in heaven and the glories of eternal life, they're great, but those are the benefits of the prize. The prize is actually and truthfully and eternally and beautifully Jesus. Jesus is the prize. He is the, the grand prize. The greatest reality that any person can ever know is that when they breathe their last breath, breath, that they would be looking on the face of Jesus and they would hear him say, I'm here. Welcome home. Welcome home. There was one thing Paul was completely sure about, that Jesus was and is the greatest and grandest prize in the universe, in this life and in the life to come. But if we're honest with ourselves, some of us don't always feel that way. Some of us have have developed a whole other world of of prizes. And some of those things are good and noble, but, but they're not Jesus. Rick Thomas says this, If Satan can keep you from magnifying the gospel, he will. If he can't keep you steeped in legalism and he loses that battle with you, then he can keep you focused on something else, even if it's just grace. Anything but the Son of God will work for him. At the end of the day, he's a pragmatist who is looking for one result. Do not magnify Christ. Do not lift him up. Or maybe put another way, the enemy does not want you to make Jesus your prize. He he wants you to prize your vacation. He wants you to prize your car. He wants you to prize your motorcycle. He wants you to prize your truck. He wants you to prize your boat. He wants you to prize your faded glory in athletics. He wants you to prize your career, your job, your education, your retirement. He wants you to prize even your family more than Jesus because if you will, then you will not have your prizes right. Anything but lifting up Jesus is good enough for him. 
Because if he can get you to not prize Jesus, then he can ruin almost anything else in your life. I think I've shared with you before, as Johnny Hunt, I first heard say that if you had 100 acres of land and the enemy could have one acre, he'd have the acre in the middle so he could walk across every other part of your life. If you don't prize Jesus, then he's winning. He's winning. See, what we have to do is we, we have to press on. We have to fix our eyes on the goal again. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We can't wait till next Sunday. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to, to become the kind of people that, that we look at all that's happening in our lives, but, but we start to whisper to our souls, you know what? Jesus is fairer. Jesus is pure. Jesus shines brighter. And his love, it's higher. And his love, it's wider. His love is truer. His love is greater. We need to make preaching the gospel to ourselves our best habit. We need to make preaching the gospel to ourselves our number one priority. We need to whisper the gospel to ourselves when we're at the hospital. We need to sing the gospel to ourselves when we're stuck in traffic. When we're alone, we need to speak the gospel or sometimes shout the gospel to ourselves. And not always just to us. Sometimes we need to sing and whisper and speak and shout the gospel to each other. Because you know, none of us have arrived. We are all sinners standing in the need of grace and help and friends and brothers and sisters reminding us of the great news of the gospel. Some of us remember watching the, maybe one of the most powerful moments in Olympic history, maybe even all of sports. It was the Summer Olympics of 1992. Derek Redmond was a British runner. He was running in the 400-meter semifinal. About 150 meters in, he, he pulled up with a limp. He tore his hamstring. In, in seconds, he's laying on the track just in immense pain. After a few moments, he, he found some way to, to hobble up, and, and he began to hop down the track on one lane. He, he was going to finish that race. And as he turned the corner and, and made the big long lane heading toward the finish line, suddenly in the background, somebody began to, to run up to him on the track. And they got closer and closer, and they, and they finally got up, and they grabbed his arm, and, and they began to help him. It was his father. Out of 65,000 people in this stadium, somehow his dad made it down to the track and made it over to his son because he was going to help his son make it to the finish line, and he did. And when they got there, he, he let go of Derek just for a second so that Derek could hop across the line on his own. And 65,000 people in that stadium were roaring with cheers and applause for what they saw in that dynamic moment. Fathers, come alongside your family. Help them see the greatest goal. Lead them to the only finish line that matters. Lead them to the perfect prize.
And Christian, when Jesus welcomes you home, please know that the applause will be much bigger, more than likely, than 65,000 people in an Olympic stadium. And that moment will be purer and higher and truer and greater and filled with more love than you can possibly imagine. Why? Because no eye has seen and no ear has heard. No heart, no mind has conceived what the Lord has prepared for those who love Him. So press on. Let us press on. Press on.